Welcome to Culture Cryptids, the horror podcast that's probably actually three gremlins in a trench coat. Hello, and very happy Friday the 13th to everyone. Is happy the right word to use? It was, is not. It is not. Not even a little. Not even a little. This, listeners, this is our third time recording this episode. We've tried. We've, we've tried. We've, we've done an entire episode two e- times before this one. And edited it. Yes, that is correct. We have edited it. We have gone through it. And each time. Computer says no. Things have gone horribly wrong. I think it's because we joked about Friday the 13th in the first two times we did it. Yeah, I, I'm just going to say that I hope that everyone else's Friday the 13th has gone much better than ours. Yes. Yes. So, um, don't, even though I said before, do not pet a black, well, no, pet a black cat, but don't walk under a ladder. Don't break a mirror. Those are the things I joked about. Don't do that. Nobody's going to get that joke because the episode's <laughs> gone. You can't reiterate a joke if you didn't tell it the first time. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Nope. <laughs> But it was a good try. Thanks. Thank you. I'll give you that much. Well, I am Corey, your host, your ghost host. And I'm JD. And according to a recent study, there's about an 85% chance that my queer ass is possessed by a ghost. I have so many questions about the validity of that study, for starters. But also, only 86%? 85, 85. But you're in the right direction. It is definitely higher. You're far more haunted than that. I am. My ass is haunted. I mean, I would. That's just so specific. No, I, I mean. In no, the, in I mean, you said it. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't want to go there. Well, anyway, we figured since it's Friday the 13th that we would dig into some urban legends and some American folklore. And what better place to start than Vanishing Hitchhikers? Yeah, the Vanishing Hitchhiker or the phantom hitchhiker, depending upon your geographic variation of the myth, is a very common North American story in which a traveler, uh, typically traveling by car and automobile, meets with or somehow comes into contact with a hitchhiker. And throughout the course of the story, at some point, the hitchhiker vanishes without an explanation. And often this happens from a moving vehicle. Yeah, I think we've all heard a version of this. I know I have. Yeah, I think it's something that most of us grew up with. I mean, I want to say specifically in the South because we have so many different urban legends and stories. You throw a rock around here and you hit a ghost. It's true. There's haints in these hills. Haints and hollers. Yes, definitely. But I think it is common all over the United States. I think you're going to find that there's a lot of different variations in them. But that they're just all over the place. Yeah. I I think a good place to start, though, would be a version that we both know from growing up. And it's from the third Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Mm -hmm. More Tales to Chill Your Bones by Alvin Schwartz. And it's called The Bus Stop. Ed Cox was driving home from work in a rainstorm. While he waited for a traffic light to change, he saw a young woman standing alone at the bus stop. She had no umbrella and was soaking wet. Are you going towards Farmington? He called. Yes, I am, she said. Would you like a ride home? I would, she said, and she got in. My name is Joanna Finney. Thank you for rescuing me. I'm Ed Cox, he said, and you're welcome. On the way, they talked and talked. She told him about her family and her job and where she had gone to school, and he told her about himself. By the time they got to her house, the rain had stopped. I'm glad it rained, Ed said. Would you like to go out tomorrow after work? I'd love to, Joanna said. She asked him to meet her at the bus stop, since it was near her office. They had such a good time, they went out many times after that. Always they would meet at the bus stop, and off they would go. Ed liked her more each time he saw her. But one night, when they had a date to go out, Joanna did not appear. Ed waited at the bus stop for almost an hour. Maybe something's wrong, he thought, and he drove to her house in Farmington. An older woman came to the door. I'm Ed Cox, he said. Maybe Joanna told you about me. I had a date with her tonight. We were supposed to meet at the bus stop near her office, 
but she didn't show up. Is she all right? The woman looked at him as if he'd said something strange. I'm Joanna's mother, she said slowly. Joanna isn't here now, but why don't you come in? Ed pointed to a picture on the mantel. That looks just like her, he said. It did, once, her mother replied. But that picture was taken when she was your age, about 20 years ago. A few days later, she was waiting in the rain at that bus stop. A car hit her, and she was killed. The end. That is a spooky story. (laughs) And it's also probably one of the most common variations of the hitchhiking myth that you kind of come across, or... I should say the hitchhiking story that right. you come across. I mean, there 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 are others in the scary stories mm-hmm. collection. Just to, that lets us know how how many there are. Yeah, each of the each of the scary stories books has at least one version, and a few of them have a kind of a couple different, very close retellings. A, a, like vanishing hitchhiker adjacent. Yeah, yes, yes. that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I think yeah. there are a lot of vanishing hitchhiker adjacent stories out there. Well, I think we would be remiss if in talking about vanishing hitchhikers, we didn't bring up the man who is kind of responsible for bringing them back to the forefront um, for the modern age. And that would be uh, Jen Harold Brunvond. Yeah. A noted folklorist and researcher who really was, I, I think you told me that he's called what, Mr. Urban Legend? Yes, that is what they call him, Mr. Urban Legend. And in his 1981 nonfiction publication, um, The Vanishing Hitchhiker, American Urban Legends and Their Meanings, of course, Vanishing Hitchhiker is in the name, but there are so many other stories in there that we are familiar with and in subsequent publications as well, like The uh, Rat in the Coke Bottle Mm -hmm. or The Hook Hand or The Calls Coming from Inside the House, (laughs) those type of things. Always the babysitters. Yeah, Yeah, the book itself, The Vanishing Hitchhiker, is fantastic. It is a work of nonfiction, and it's a collection of all these stories, and it gives you some some really good insight on like how many there are of each story. It's kind of wild to go through and read all of those. And I think one of the the things that I really enjoyed in researching him, his kind of impetus for collecting all of these and you know, bringing them into the modern age was as a professor, he had a hard time getting his students to connect to the material. They're always like, these are other people's stories from a different time. And so he's like, all right, well, I'm going to tell these to you and they're going to scare the pants off of you. So basically he wrote the versions we know today of these stories, would you say, or I, I would say he's responsible for the way we look at them today. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Cause it yeah. seems like if you kind of connect it to these stories happen to your cousins, you know, friend of a friend, a friend of a friend, <laughs> or again, your, your grandma's great uncle who lived three, three cities over. And, and, and then looking into this further, I, another thing that I loved was just how many, variations there are and how they're classified and how different people have created classification systems for the vanishing hitchhiker. I really love academics. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So the first group I found were Beardsley and Hankey. Um, and in 1942 and 43, they had an article each year in the California folklore quarterly, a history of the vanishing hitchhiker. And they broke it down into four Mm -hmm. categories that you could take all of vanishing traveler stories and put them into but then you fast forward to 1966 and you have Ernest Bauman with his, let me take a breath for this because it is a long title, Type and Motif Index of the Folk Tales of England and North America. And in that one, Motif E332.3.3.1, there are 10 variants of the vanishing hitchhiker myth. I should have known you would have come with me with a list. I love my list. You really love your list. Am I allowed to do this one? I mean, you can't tease me with all these different variations and and not show show me what you've got. So here we go. Okay. So we have sub A for vanishing hitchhikers who reappear on anniversaries. B for vanishing hitchhikers who leave items in vehicles unless the item is in a pool of water in which case it is E332.3.1, sorry, .3.1C. D is for accounts of sinister old ladies who prophesize disasters. Oh, that sounds about right. 
E contains accounts of phantoms who are apparently sufficiently solid to engage in activities such as eating or drinking during their journey. F is for phantom parents who want to be taken to their sickbed of their dying son. That's a little patriarchal right there. Why not their daughter? Anyway, G is for hitchhikers simply requesting a lift home. And then H through J is a category reserved exclusively for vanishing nuns, some of who foretell the future. Vanishing nuns. Yes. Well, there's something for everyone out there. Which is apparently a common variant of the story. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It sounds like the old ladies foretelling doom just sounds a lot like Facebook some days. (laughs) Yeah. And what is it you say about prophecies? Anything can be a prophecy if you try hard enough. You can make any prophecy come true. You just have to put a little effort into it. A little elbow grease here and there and you're good to go. Boom, it's a good prophecy. Yeah. So do we want to get into some well-known and not so well-known versions of this myth? Yeah, we definitely should. Because some of those I think we're a little more familiar with than others. Because I think that the one that I've always heard growing up was one where the passenger leaves something that kind of is a hallmark. But that's not... The most popular one. Yeah, the calling card is definitely something you hear in a lot of the stories. Like, I left a scarf or you give them something and then you come back to get it and it's draped over a gravestone or something. Yeah, yeah. that's the one that I am have been the most familiar with it growing up is like, oh, and he found it on a grave. <laughs> you have to say it very dramatically when you're telling the story. It doesn't count. Say it one more time for me. And he found it on a grave. You have been waiting to use that sound effect for months. Thank you. I appreciate you rewarding me for how terrible this has been. I'm so happy for you. I let you do this because you had such a bad time (laughs) with the editing process. Thank you. Thank you. Well, should we talk about Resurrection Mary? We absolutely should talk about Resurrection Mary. Resurrection Mary, I think to me, is probably the most well-known vanishing hitchhiker myth and Probably Chicago's most famous ghost, would you say? From everything I've been able to read, definitely she comes up the most in all kind of like researching Chicago stories about ghosts and spooks. Yeah, so this dates back to the 1930s. So the story goes um, that Mary was at the O'Henry Ballroom, which then became the Willowbrook Ballroom, which stood until 2016 when when it was burned down. And was walking home on Archer Avenue. Now, Archer Avenue in Chicago has a lot of supernatural activity associated with it. It's worth looking into. I want to talk about it. Not going to talk about it now because it would be its own entire episode. Stay on topic. I'm going to. Stay on target. (laughs) So she's walking home and gets hit by a car, hit and run driver and dies. Parents are grief stricken, obviously. They bury her beautiful dress, beautiful dancing shoes in Resurrection Cemetery, which just happens to be on the other end of Archer Avenue. So from that time onward, there are multiple accounts of her walking that particular stretch and asking for rides or people hitting her. And then when they get out, there's no one there. I mean, at least she doesn't have far to go. Wow. Looking for a ride. Wow. She's not very far. Is there a particular account that you're fond of or anything that you found when you were looking into Mary? So when I was looking into the story, I did find that, again, she's one of the most active ghosts in Chicago and that there were something like three dozen, quote unquote, credible stories regarding her. And in, in some of which and this this is from an article taken from a, a local ghost hunter. But in some of them, she's either just seen or she darts across the street and causes traffic accidents. There's been plenty of accidents that have said to be caused by a woman and is specifically in a white dress. She's interesting because people don't often pick her up as much as they see her or hit her. Right. And that was the account that I was most taken by is another one where they don't pick her up, but it's from August of 1976 where a passerby was driving past resurrection cemetery and saw a girl grasping at the bars They thought she was trapped inside, so they call the authorities, and when they show up, obviously there's no one there. But what they did find is that the rails of the fence were bent at sharp angles, and there were two blackened scorch marks indicating where they'd been pulled apart. The scorch marks were in the shape of handprints and appeared to have the texture of human skin. So that's the part that gets me, is that she just... 
She didn't leave a calling card. She just left her fingerprints just right there on the metal. Like scorched. Yeah. That's that's a pretty fucking big calling card. To I me. mean, you think so <laughs> that, that that's like what you leave in your wake is just have some fingerprints. OK. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, Mary is a, a very popular one, but the kind of archetype that Mary establishes is something that's repeated in lots of different versions of the story across the United States. In looking, there was another one from North Carolina, Lydia, the ghost mm-hmm. of the jo- uh, Jamestown Bridge. And this one dates back to 1924. And it's at the intersection of two bridges. I think one is still used for like trains, but one is abandoned. And the underpass is where a possibly a fatal car accident took place, which explains why Lydia is there. But she is also distra- described as being dressed up going somewhere and having a to-do and not being able to get there and people picking her up. There's a really, really good account of Lydia that I would like to read, if that is okay. I don't know why you're asking me if it's okay. You should just go ahead and do it. Well, you love stories. I want to make sure you're I, on board. I love stories. You love lists. This is how we work. All right. This account is from 1969. <clears throat> I was riding from Greenville to Winston-Salem and decided to take the old road to Greensboro. It was early dawn and the month was October. I was very drowsy, but suddenly woke up when I saw a young girl dressed in a long gown standing on the highway. I stopped and asked her if I could help her. She said that her date had gotten mad when she stopped his advances and had made her get out and walk. I offered to take her home, and she accepted. She didn't say much on the way. When we got there, I got out and came around to open the door for her. But she was gone. I couldn't understand it and went up to the house and rang the bell. When an elderly lady answered, I asked for Mary. Not again, was all she said. I said, what? And she explained that Mary had been killed in a car wreck. I was about the fifth person in eight years that had tried to bring her home. It sure shook me up knowing I had driven a ghost around. I just hope that poor girl gets wherever it is she's going. Very well done. Great story. Thank you. Two things that I feel we must address immediately. I mean, there's other things to address, but two things immediately. One is it this mother just answers like answers the door? Not again. Just again, girl. Really again? Is is sort of just this response that's just like you can kind of tell that it's just like not oh, bothered by the ghost, bothered no, by the inconvenience. Yeah, super inconvenient that you've come to my door and asked for my dead child. Very inconvenient. Thanks. How dare you? How dare you? And then secondly, it's that last line of the story that gets me. I, I love it so much because it's like, I, I just hope that poor girl gets to whatever it is she's going. It's such a poor, a pure response. Yeah. It's yeah. like, gosh, like she just, I don't know where she wanted to go, but she sure wanted to get there real bad. <laughs> and you can kind of hear the accent that this story should have been told in, like by the original teller. Like it's there. I can hear it. it yeah. It, it, it drips with <laughs> like that Southern. Like, it yeah, does. Yeah, it yeah. really does. I love it. I love the whole thing. But also, I think that the story is really interesting because even though this is supposedly set near Greensboro, they refer to the ghost as Mary. Even though it's Lydia. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting because it kind of comes full circle and it it matches so many other things that are Mm -hmm. established with Mary. So you have a young woman. Mm Mm-hmm. She's going somewhere. Mm-hmm. She's dressed very nice. She, they're almost always dressed in a gown, dancing gown, formal wear, something like that. And that's pretty consistent for a majority of these that you find even throughout the country. Yeah, you see that that story of a young woman who is is going out somewhere. I think there's a variation where there's tinsel in her hair from a party. There's variations where she has they they specifically like to talk about her shoes. A lot of times they like to talk about how they're dancing shoes, their fancy shoes, and it really sets her apart from a hitchhiker you might see normally, like someone who's hiking, someone who's accustomed to road traveling, that she looks out of place automatically. So it's in the dark. Her dress is bright colored. She doesn't have a pack or anything like that. And that's what really makes these stories, I think, interesting to hear about. Because the the character that shows up is so out of place. Right. Yeah. And very car centric, which mm-hmm. is the, the thing which 
you know, car culture is a huge thing in the United States still to this day. So I think that that's, that explains that. But this story and this motif goes back even further. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of research on that and kind of looking at kind of earlier versions of the story and what we could find. And that's the most interesting thing about the fandom hitchhiker myths, because unlike a lot of the other urban legends that you see that take place in specifically the 21st century or the 20th century, this one dates back to much, much earlier folklore. And while you can see it a lot in European myths and legends, you can also find it like all around the world. Um, Rumvard, who we mentioned earlier in all of his, his work, Rumvan, sorry, he points out parallels in everything from like Korea to Russia. There's stories among Chinese Americans. The Mormons have their own variant of this story. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it does take place. It refers to the prophet specifically. And in some Ozark Mountaineers, there's several different variations of it. One of the ones that I really liked was in the time before automobiles, because you see a lot of these things takes place in the thirties to the fifties is supposedly when these crashes happen. But if you dig a little deeper, you'll see, you'll find some um, much like this one that takes place a lot earlier. And this is an account from the 1700s in Del Mar, New York. And they talk about there being a phantom rider, which is a young mysterious woman who would leap on the back of horses ridden by young men specifically young men. So they're in motion and they're in motion. And she would just jump on the back with, with the rider. And while the ghost is said to be said to be possibly jealous, she would never do any harm. And then she would disappear as soon as the horse stopped. So if the young man tried to stop and see what was going on, she's not there. She's not there. And if he went to his destination, she still wouldn't be there. How do they know it's a woman then? I don't know. I think maybe they supposedly see her there's look i was not there in the 1700s i'm not that old thank you for asking but it is kind of one of the earlier iterations of it because you do see horses and carts and buggies and a lot of those are very common and while you do see them all over we're obviously going to try to focus more on the american ones because we are talking about that kind of subsection of urban legends but there's a really great one also in america that is about the goddess pele So this one is Hawaii and in Hawaiian religion, Pele is the goddess of volcanoes, fires, and the creator of the Hawaiian islands. So she was a very popular figure in religious practices. She is still a very popular figure today. People talk about her a lot. There's a lot of uh, places that are um, dedicated to her. And I mean, there's a Tori Amos album that she's in the name. There you go. There's a Tori Amos album. She has peaked at Tori Amos. Someone tell the goddess that. But, I'm sorry for bringing that up. No, it's fine. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> but so there are a lot of kind of supernatural sightings about Pele that feature her. And a lot of them, they feature her as an old and decrepit lady, usually depicted with long white hair. She's either wearing a dress or a muumuu of some kind. And she will ask for food or water or transportation. And in these cases, it's said that she's testing the character and the aloha spirit of the people. If you offer her help, you'll be rewarded. And if you deny her, you'll be cursed and punished. Oh, so typical God behavior. Yeah, typical God behavior. (laughs) And in at least, so these were collected, a lot of researchers in Hawaii collected about 50 stories that took place in the first half of the 21st century. So in the same time period. And in most of those, you pick her up as a hitchhiker and typically she'll get in the back of the vehicle and then she will mysteriously vanish during the car ride. There are others that there's interesting stories that used to take place like that have been dated back to the 30s where it depicts Pele as like an unusual hotel guest. And I really wanted to find more about this, but like I could only find a vaguest mention of it where she was show up as a hotel guest and ask for things and it kind of this was also another case of her like testing her people and depending upon how you interacted with her would kind of reward punishment that you would get. And as you mentioned, this is literally the old school deities playbooks. <laughs> this particular myth and story, like all pagan religions 
feature this kind of behavior from their deities. I mean, it it sounds like some Zeus bullshit to me. It is absolutely (laughs) some Zeus bullshit. He was notorious for this. Him and Poseidon, the two of those assholes, would just show up and be like, so human, what's up? And a lot of time they would do it to either bestow favor upon someone that they really liked, you know, their illegitimate offspring, but we're not, we're not going to go there this time or to test somebody that they knew would always going to fail. But you also see it in a lot of other cultures, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, and of course the indigenous peoples in the Americas all have different versions of this kind of deity testing you and showing up and then disappearing and disappearing. (laughs) And that's the thing that was like, once they have, once they have shown who they are, they disappear. Once you get your employee evaluation, yes. they disappear back to <laughs> That's God exactly HR. what it is. Yeah. yeah, they go back to HR. <laughs> um, so that is an interesting, what a lot of researchers think might be one of the, maybe not origins, but maybe a variation of this myth or this, I keep calling it a myth, but these stories and these urban legends that we hear about so many times. Well, and I think in the Scary Stories book, it actually mentions in the the bus stop, the one that you read, it traces it back all the way to um, early Rome or it, Roman times, correct? It does. There's a Roman kind of variation that Schwartz views as an early kind of telling of the story. And I'm actually going to read that. Thank you for reminding me because I almost forgot about this one. But I'm going to read this one from, again, this is also Scary Stories 3. So I'm going to read from the back. More tales to chill your bones. You have to say the full title. The full title. I'm so sorry. Written, compiled by Alvin Schwartz. With illustrations by Stephen Campbell. Well, the illustrations are the most important part. No, no offense to anything else like that, but oh, those illustrations. Also, neither here nor there. Let's get focused. <laughs> so the story in ancient Rome involved a young woman named Philinian who died. Then six months later was seen with a man she loved who did not know of her death. When her parents learn of her appearance, they rush to see her. She accuses them of interfering with her quote unquote life. And then dies a second time, which absolutely sounds like every teenager I've ever met. Mom, dad, you're literally (laughs) killing me. Except in this case, you know, she was already dead. So she died again. Yeah. You're killing me again. And um, Schwartz does give that one some credit for being one of the foundational stories for this kind of hitchhiking myth as well, which I thought was really fascinating. So we've got our cars. Yes. We've got our horses. Yes. We've got our buggies. Mm-hmm. We've got gods and goddesses just going all over the place. That's so, what they kind of like to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, how has this myth progressed into the modern age? Like, do we have any um, Uber ghost or rideshare ghost <laughs> or uh, bicycle courier ghost or anything like that? Well, I haven't been able to find you any bicycle courier ghosts. I did look in to see if there was any sort of more modern retelling, because again, a lot of the things that we talked about are from the thirties to the forties and fifties. But beyond that, it, it takes a while for any other ones to come out. And I was looking into it and I was like, okay, there has to be some accounts of modern transportation somewhere. Give me a story about modern transportation. So of course I look up, what you think would be the most haunted thing in the world, the subway system. Right. Well, it's in the movie Ghost. There is a subway ghost. I mean, obviously, if it's in the movie Ghost, it must be true. Why are we? Why? Why are you like this? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're not. But that's that's part of it is that I did look into that and subway ghosts were something I tried to look at. So I and, didn't. And just to clarify Ghost on a subway. Ghost on a subway. Not a subway train station that was like abandoned and not tunnels that were supposedly haunted and by not spirits. not a ghost train. And, and not a ghost train. Because those are a dime a dozen. There's so many ghost trains. I don't, that's, I don't want to talk about ghost trains. I want to talk about hitchhikers. So I couldn't find any of that. The only thing I could find on the entirety of the internet, and maybe I'm bad at research, but I really tried, was a story on Reddit, of all places, about a haunted Subway. And when I say subway, I'm not referring to the trains. I'm referring to the subway sandwich shops all over the U.S. As in subway eat fresh. Eat fresh. Okay. With ghosts, apparently. (laughs) So there's a huge like Reddit story that was repeated multiple times about a haunted subway shop. And I'm like, that's. Didn't understand the assignment. Clearly, it's not what I wanted. 
But in my humble opinion, Subway is kind of a sad place, so it would make sense that it's haunted. <laughs> Eat fresh. It's. I want to know more about this, but obviously no. Not right it, now. For a different time, a different that's a time. different story for a different time. But I was able to find some examples of modern transportation that have kind of spawned their own versions of the stories. And one that I wanted to talk about was actually flight 401. Now this particular report comes from a completely factual piece of history. So this is an event that happened that has sort of spawned these stories. And a lot of the stories I'm about to talk about come from a, a book from a um, book by John G. Fuller, who was a paranormal researcher from the 70s. And this book was written in 1976, and it's called The Ghosts of Flight 401. So first, let me tell you the story, and then we'll go into the backstory about it. So You have my permission to tell the story. I'm glad I have your permission to do a thing I was going to do anyway. If there was a glass on this table, I would knock it over just to be oppositionally defiant. I do what I want. What I want to do is tell the story. In early 1973, the captain on an Easter Airlines flight from Newark, New Jersey to Miami was asked to check on a passenger in first class. The passenger in question was another Eastern Airline pilot, apparently deadheading, which refers to someone who's flying home off the clock, but wasn't listed on the flight manifest. So the man, dressed in a full captain's uniform, hadn't responded to the questions of the senior flight attendant. He was just staring straight ahead as if a daze. So they called the pilot back. And when the captain approached the passenger, he stopped and exclaimed, my God, that's Bob Loft. Now, the story doesn't seem like it's a big deal because it's just one colleague greeting another and kind of surprised to see them. There was just one problem with this is that Captain Bob Loft had been dead for months. Ooh. Yeah. So that gets us into the incident, which is Eastern Flight 401, which again happened on December 29th, 1972. It was regarded as, at the time, had the highest death toll of any single plash crane in the continent of the United States, to give you an idea. Um, Eastern Flight 401 was also from New York to Miami, and it took off at JFK, JFK Airport with 176 people aboard. At 11.30 p.m., the captain welcomed everyone to the city as the plane descended towards Miami International Airport. At 11.42, Flight 401 crashed into the Everglades at 225 miles per hour. The captain on that flight was Bob Loft. He died in the cockpit not long after impact. Second officer Don Repo survived the crash, but he died in the hospital a few days later. Altogether, 101 passengers and crews perished in the crash. So there were some survivors. Correct. 75 people survived this. And again, at the time, it was the highest the wor- the highest casualty of any crash in the continent of the United States. I, I can't believe I've never heard about this before. Yeah, I hadn't either. So it was it was a big deal when it happened. It's in a lot of aeronautical magazines. It's mentioned a lot when you talk about air flight disasters. So it is a very well-known crash in aeronautics. I think it just has fallen out of the public eye. So when Flight 401 was recovered from the swamp and it was scrapped. Now, it should notice that there was a mechanical failure on the flight and that's why it failed. Um, But instead of deposing of the plane in its entirety, an effort was made by Eastern Airlines to salvage any usable parts from the flight and put them onto other planes. So this is when the story gets interesting, after this happened. So they took the parts from this horrible, horrible incident. Mm -hmm. And then threw them into other planes. They used salvageable pieces of like scrap and things like that to recycle them into the planes. Okay. Correct. Just wanted to make sure I understood that. Go this on. Is, this is according to, again, the story. And again, this is when the story gets interesting. Passenger flights that received recycle parts experienced strange visits from ghosts, later identified as Bob Loft and Don Repo. So, of course, there was the story that I just told you. And there are several other documented flights that I'm like going to go into for this one because I do think it's very interesting. Um, on one flight, a captain and a stewardess saw and spoke to Loft, who then vanished after they recognized him. The crew was so upset that the flight was canceled. On another flight, a woman became hysterical when she sat next to Repo and witnessed him vanished. 
She identified him from a photograph. Um, one plane had a damaged galley oven. A stewardess said she saw a man work on the oven and repair it. No one on the plane admitted to fixing the oven. No one knew where it came from, but she identified the man as Don Repo in the aftermath. So how did it get repaired is sort of the question there. Right. On a, on a flight 903, there was another documented incident. A stewardess saw the, a face staring at her from a galley oven. It was, again, Don Repo. She gathered the fellow stewardess and the plane's engineer to all look at the oven. All three of them supposedly saw this face. He warned the trio about a fire in the airplane. The plane landed safely in Mexico City, but on the second leg of the trip, the plane's engine malfunctioned and returned safely back to the airport. Had it continued its journey, it would have caught fire as Repo had warned. So there are multiple versions of the story of the same variation, where these pilots appeared on a plane to either sit and be a passenger or to either fix something or warn of a possible impending disaster. So it was entirely benevolent when they did show up. Yeah. Um, According to Fuller's book, both pilots were known to be caring, compassionate men. They were very well regarded and they always took care of their crew and their passengers. So it's kind of believed that they continued to do so from the afterlife. They would come back in and check on the crew and the passengers of the flights that there were pieces of their plane still in. That is very different than most accounts of haunted objects. <laughs> it is because it's it's one of those things like, is it the object haunted? Is it the airlines? Who really knows? Now, there is something to say that a lot of these accounts have been disputed, of course, because that's always how it goes. And Robert J. Serling's wrote a book called From the Captain to the Colonel, An Informal History of Eastern Airlines. And in this 1980 book, he he says that the claim that the wreckage from Flight 401 was installed and later removed from other crafts is false. And he also said that no Eastern Airlines had ever claimed to have seen or believed the alleged ghost sightings. Now, which account is correct, we don't actually know because Eastern Airlines disbanded in 1991. So we don't have any current history of it to know. But we do know that according to the stories that were told at the time, Eastern Airline officials warned anyone speaking about anything that they saw would immediately lose their jobs. The fact that you have to threaten people with firing if they bring something up kind of makes me think that it's true. It's, it's weird, but this is all alleged. Right. Like everything is alleged in these stories. So I think that this is really interesting because it gives you a date and a place for these events to happen, which brings me to kind of my next more modern stories. You have another one for me? I do have another one for Ooh. you. You wanted rideshare ghosts. I could not find that. However, I did my best. And this one actually takes place outside of the U.S., but I do find it really an interesting kind of variation of the hitchhiking ghosts. And these are the taxi ghosts of Japan. All right. Yeah. Taxi is, is close it, enough. Yeah, it's, it's I'll take close it. close I could get. Okay. <laughs> so in 2016, which brings us almost to, you know, current day, a Japanese sociology student named Yuka Kudo began interviewing taxi drivers in the city of Ishinomaki in the Miyagi prefecture, specifically asking them a question among a bunch of other questions for her sociology work, which was, did you have any unusual experiences in the aftermath of 2011? And out of 100 drivers that she interviewed, most ignored her, pretended not to hear the question, or kind of almost made her get out of the the car at that point. But seven of, them, seven of them reported a story that was eerily identical. All of them reported experiences with ghost passengers. And these were riders, they say, entered their cabs during the summer of 2011. Now, this is important because 2011 was the date of the tsunami disaster. I was just, I was thinking, I was like, that. yeah, 2011 rings, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, and in that disaster, nearly 16,000 people very suddenly lost their lives, and many of their bodies were never recovered for burial. So Japan, even in 2016, is still reeling with the, the aftermath of those events. Right. And this particular prefecture, and specifically the city of Ishinomaki, 
was hit. It was one of the hardest areas hit by the tsunami. So as she was interviewing these drivers, she got a few stories. And one of them, one of the drivers, as one example story, is that he picked up a woman who was dressed inappropriately for the weather. She was wearing a big kind of winter coat that was kind of out of season and everything like that. Um, he, he picked her up. She got into the cab and she sat in the back seat. And then he remembers her asking, have I died? Oh. And, and before they reached her destination, she had disappeared from the back seat. Oh yeah. It's a really chilling story. Um, another driver told Yuka of a lost looking man in his twenties whom he picked up and kept, kept pointing forward when he asked where he wanted to be taken instead of answering. And having been asked several times for an address, the passenger simply stated Hiyoriyama, which is a mountain that's located not far out of the city. So he took him to this mountain and, and took it. They arrived at the summit of the mountain the driver turned around to find that the strange young man had vanished from his car altogether. Um, the supposed riders in the account, which again are very much compared to the phantom hitchhiker events, were all generally young people too. This is something that the drivers recounted that they looked young. Okay. Uh, many of the cabbies that Yuka Kudo interviewed recorded their strange experiences in their logbooks. So there's a record of this from 2011. Uh, the driver who told the story of the young man who disappeared at the mountain even showed him a log of an unpaid fare to the mountain. So there's like concrete evidence. There's a concrete record yeah. of this, yeah. So at the very least, the cabbie's records prove that they believe the passenger was with them. Um, in Japanese culture, the spirit, well, we call them phantom hitchhikers, which of course they still are. They'll probably be called something closer to a yuri. So because Japanese culture has a deep, embedded in specific relationship with ghosts, which they refer to as yuri. And it's based on the Shinto tenets of ancestor worshiped Japanese ghost folklore often feature spirits with like unfinished business. They haven't been laid to rest properly. So if a person's spirit hasn't been laid to rest, the spirit will wander the earth kind of looking for a home that they can't quite find, which makes sense if they are being picked up by these, you know, by these cabbie drivers and tech to bring somewhere. So in that case, you kind of see this connection between our kind of American stories and this specific instance in 2011 of the URA, which I should point out that ghost sightings in Japan skyrocketed after that disaster across the board, too. So not just not just these taxi ghosts, but just in general. Right. Just all the way in general. So those are the taxi ghosts of Japan. I think it's interesting that in both this account and also flight 401, there's so much more in depth kind of specific, some, I would say concrete information. Mm -hmm. There are actual incidents to tie these two. They're kind of quantifiable in a way that you have dates, you have names of people who passed away and you have specific instances that we can have a record, a written record of. It's not a friend of a friend situation. It's not. It's nebulous. Right. Yeah. So along that line, I was kind of curious. I was like, okay, so we've got these more nebulous tales that have kind of stood the test of time. We have some more modern ones. Is there a real life situation that's kind of spawned Mm -hmm. one of these urban legends? And the closest thing I could find was Raymond Robinson. Raymond Robinson, also known as the Green Man or Charlie No-Face, born in 1910, Died in 1985. So this is contemporary. Contemporary. Yeah. Yeah. He was 74. So when he was nine years old, he was climbing a bridge to, I believe he was trying to look in like at a bird's nest that was on the bridge. This particular bridge carried a trolley line. So there was live wire. He touched this and was electrocuted. He lost his eyes, his nose and his right arm in that accident, which that's where he gets the name Charlie no face. He was kind of obviously very um, self-conscious about the way he looked. So as he got older, he would go on nighttime walks on State Route 352 in Pennsylvania because he didn't want anybody to have to be subjected to see him. By all accounts, lovely man. Mm -hmm. um, Did a lot with his family through his entire life. Motorists would try to find him on that stretch of road and take photos with him. 
So he's passed now. And now the myth is that he still haunts that stretch. He's still out there and he has green skin because of the accident from the electricity just coursing through his body. That's just scientifically inaccurate. (laughs) I don't know. You're Frankensteins. They're usually green. (laughs) Anyway, he also said to like live in a abandoned house out in the woods. So you have this very lovely man who is now this urban legend of this specter, creepy Charlie, Mm -hmm. no face or the green man. So I think it's really interesting that this one it's something concrete. It's an actual person. You can find records of this person that is kind of transcended into legend now. Yeah, that is a really interesting one that I had never heard about until you brought that up. I had, I had no idea that was out there. But it does kind of talk about how we transform stories into other stories. Like we'll, we'll take history and turn it into what other kind of narrative that we need. Which I think speaks to, I mean, kind of really what do all of these stories usually have in common in some way or form or fashion? You kind of get to the bare bones of the, the hitchhiker myth. Like, what do you find? Well, I think most of them, it's a woman. Yes. Specifically a young woman, a young woman. Yes. She gives an address. Mm -hmm. Always disappears before arrival or upon arrival leaves a calling card. Mm -hmm. Perhaps like, a scarf or takes like a jacket or something to, for the cold from the person who's driving. There's some sort of tangible evidence that she has either been there or that an experience has happened. Right. And in like going to maybe an address that the person has, the hitchhiker has given them, mm-hmm. they find out that this person is no longer alive. Yeah. yeah. And that that's one of the big tenets of the story is that, they find out through some sort of evidence that that the hitchhiker has left, that they're no longer with us. It's not just something that conclusion they come to. There's something left behind or something that either they return to where they dropped her off and find out that the, the address is really a graveyard or, you know, some sort of <laughs> there's story a he- there's element a headstone with this person's. Name yeah. There's yeah. a story element in there that makes it easy to track them down. So they know that it's a ghost and not that they didn't just get uh, ghosted. But all of these stories kind of revolve around this kind of same narrative. And even the ones that you see from the Flight 401, they have that element of benevolence where the ghost isn't trying to kill you. It has no interest in that whatsoever. It's strictly benign. Yeah. yeah. These, in, in some cases, are actually helpful. In some cases, they're lost. And a lot of times, which you see in some of the, like the, some of the later ones and even some of the hitchhiking ones is as soon as it's discovered that they are dead, it's almost as if the ghost realizes that they are dead and are no longer there as well. And they disappear at that instance as well, which is an interesting variant variant that we didn't talk about a lot in this, but it's something that you do see in some of the media too. Like flight 401 is an example of that. And to a lesser degree, some of the, the kind of Japanese stories that are very similar to that too. So why do you think that we, we tell these stories like that they, we continue to bring them forward. I think that I think these stories are something that have been around for a long time. And a lot of it has to do with the kind of perils of transportation in many ways, because everybody in the stories that we've talked about has died some sort of tragic death related to transportation or out of their control in some form or fashion. And as we know, so many urban legends are born out of let's scare the hell out of teenagers so they don't do a certain thing. Exactly. So that's really telling in that, too. I think that one of the things that came up when I was researching specifically Japanese ghosts was from the graduate student. She has a theory about some of the things that you keep seeing in there. Why why we tell these stories and why they come up? And is it like. And why specifically they involve usually young people. And why specifically they involve young people. And this is a a direct quote from her that I think is like really interesting and kind of sums up a lot of the things we're probably going to talk about. Young people feel strongly chagrined at their deaths when they cannot meet people they love. As they want to convey their bitterness, they may have chosen taxis or in the cases of cars or vehicles, something like that, which are like private rooms as a medium to do so. So she brings up a really good point, which is, again, 
that tying it to young people and specifically what we are kind of all obsessed with is the idea of youth and the idea of youth having this full life ahead of them. Potential. It's yeah. All, yeah, it's the potential. So young people who have died are potential just cut out right from under you. And the same can be said for the pilots in flight 401, considering that they were both very well regarded and very considered to be kind of upper echelon uh, employees that they were all the potential that they had was cut out right from under them. Yeah. We, we never want to see a life cut short at all, but we especially mm-hmm. don't want to see a young life cut short. Yeah. And not to be a little pedantic here, but it also is tied into like, Oh, a young unwed woman, what a potential life she could have had, you know, in, in that sort of, in the culture that we live in, we do have a tendency to look at, oh, like, you know, it's so sad that this young girl died. Well, and, and I think that in the, you bring a, a good point in the culture that we live in, because I also was wondering, I was like, so we still have these stories today. Mm-hmm. There are not as many new ones as there used to be. Mm-hmm. But as I stated earlier, America is still very much car culture. It's such a huge thing here. Um and I think that's why, like in Japan, it's taxi ghosts because you don't have as much of a driving yeah. culture there. I was wondering, I was like, so is there anything I can tie this to kind of scientifically mm-hmm. that would explain these vanishing hitchhiker myths and why why they happen? And highway hypnosis. Yeah, you said something about that. And I'm really curious to know what you found. So highway hypnosis for those who aren't aware, um, it's also called white line fever. It's pretty much you are driving, you suddenly fall asleep, even as deep sometime as REM sleep and you lose time. And then you are suddenly back again, which is terrifying. I've experienced it before. That's terrifying. Don't do that. I've lost five miles on a road before. Oh God. Where I just did not realize I was like, Oh, what happened? That's, what happened? That is scarier than any other story you've told me. <laughs> Cause it's real. Yes. So the, the scientific basis for how this could kind of explain vanishing hitchhiker is that when you're in this state, your brain can trigger a fear response, even though you're not kind of conscious of what's going on. In your brain is like, there is a dangerous situation. So it will create this narrative of an image of a ghost that's clear, but vague enough to where it's not very vivid. And you can even remember conversations. And then that's when they disappear is whenever you're back conscious again. So your brain is creating this to be like, this is what happened. You didn't fall asleep at the wheel. (laughs) That is wild. I have never heard that. And it, is a really fascinating explanation for why we see these things. And our, I mean, our brain tricks us all the time into seeing things or thinking that we've seen things. It's very, you can almost draw a parallel to it of like sleep paralysis demons. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you know, that's what I was thinking. Attacks. Exactly. It's very close to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's part of it is like people that you think that when your brain, when you're in that area between wakefulness and sleep is when, nothing feels real and everything feels too real at the same time. Right. So that would make sense that your brain would be like, I got to make up for this. Here we go. Did you find kind of anything from a scientific standpoint that could? Yeah. One of the things that I looked at was also in the kind of psychological realm of it. And it again, ties into this idea of collective trauma. And so when you see a lot of ghost sightings specifically in, in flight 401 and the Japanese taxi ghosts. And a lot of the things that you kind of talk about, if you go back and see all of these stories kind of take place around the same time is is the idea of, again, the collective grief and trauma because collective trauma or collective grief or grief and trauma in general always kind of create this idea that we want to seek healing and we want to find some sort of sense of safety and hope. So it's not really uncommon for either fellow survivors of catastrophic loss 
have very common reactions. And a lot of times they do have paranormal sightings, but they also have things like sounds and smells that will associate with them as well. Smells? Yeah. So not only can you feel as if you're having a supernatural event happen to you after some big traumatic event, but it can trigger not, not only the sight of something, but perhaps this memory that to do either like a sound or a smell or a taste, Just all of that sense stuff, memory. some sort of sense memory can be baked into it. And it's weird because a lot of times ghosts, that's where a lot of ghost sightings come out of because it's easier to consider having a interaction with a ghost than it is more tolerable than that loss that the death has created. So that is another explanation that people come up with for some of these things is that we have, we like as a community may have suffered the loss of a person who was again, young, had a whole life ahead of them. And we start to develop these sort of stories that come out of, well, so-and-so saw them on the road and you know, they're, they still out there in some form or fashion because a ghost is, not really, but also like a tangible thing that you can associate. We want to think that there's something after. We do. We always want to think that there's something after. And I think it's really telling that none of these ghosts are particularly malicious and they're not out for revenge. They don't want to wreck cars of the living. They don't want to cause more damage. They don't want to crash planes. They don't want to traumatize taxi drivers. It's all very sedate. Um, it's very polite in a lot of ways. Like most hitchhiking ghosts are very polite about what they're doing. They just want to get where they're going. Yeah. And I think we as people are tied to the inherent tragedy of that because they are continuing to do the same activity and not realizing that it's a repetitive action and they're actually in some sort of loop. And we being caught up in it find ourselves attached to who they could have been in life. And that's a pretty common theme in a lot of ghost stories. It is. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a very common element in ghost stories. Absolutely. Yeah. So with it being common in ghost stories, you do see a lot of vanishing hitchhikers in literature. You know, mm-hmm. we were able to find so many of them. Very hard to find other media representation of this particular urban legend and this myth. Yeah. um, Media doesn't like to tell kind of these melancholy stories. We like our gothic, gothic horror literature. There's so good. It's all over the place. But when it comes to like good gothic horror films, they don't necessarily resonate the same way. I think with especially modern audiences that you'll see these like literary and even there's some added like some songs that have been written about resurrection Mary specifically that are very folklorist and you can find them on YouTube. There are two popular songs, which is Laurie is subtitled strange things happen, which is a pop rock song from the 1960s composed by Milton C. Addington. And then there's also bringing Mary home, which is a bluegrass song from 1961 by Joe Kingston and MK Scoza. So you do have that in media. We want horror, sadness and horror to be subtext. We don't want it spelled out for us most of the time. It's so true. We really don't. (laughs) And that's why whenever you do find representations of vanishing hitchhikers in, you know, popular media, there's, they almost always throw an element of vengeance in there in the pilot of supernatural 15 seasons ago. I haven't seen it. <laughs> um, the very first episode deals with a vanishing hitchhiker, but there is it's it's a malevolent spirit. And there were, I believe, two films that have to do with Resurrection Mary that you found. And, two that I could find. And both of them, she's a vengeful spirit. Yeah, both of them, she's out for some sort of revenge. Uh, but that's pretty much all you can kind of find in vi- visual media. But again, literature is just rife with this sort of thing because one of the books that I found that I actually read several years ago is Sparrow Hill Road by Shannon McGuire. And it's a book that's written from the point of view of the hitchhiking ghost. 
And oh, that's different. <laughs> it's so different, and it's so lovely and wonderful. I love uh, Maguire's world building because this her main character is the girl in the green dress, the angel of the highways, and she was murdered back, I think, in the fifties by what is now an immortal serial killer. And she kind of traverses the American highways, protecting others from supernatural uh, threats. So she's a do-good ghost who's out there helping people. So when they pick her up, you always look for the girl in the green dress. And she is out to kind of protect people who are vulnerable in these late nights and long roads and rest stops. It's a really cool book, and I really highly recommend it for anyone who likes urban fantasy with some little bit of horror in there. I think I definitely need to check that out. Yeah, Yeah. it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's a good place to kind of leave it. We've talked about a few variants of the myth and the urban legend. Um, If anybody out there has any other specific to their region, we would love to hear about it. Please tell us your favorite hitchhiking ghost story. I would love to hear them. We need some new ones. We're so tired of the ones where we live. It's true. There's only so many times you can hear about children putting their handprints on cars. Oh, and pushing up the hill. That's, gosh, that's such a common one. I don't know if that's common anywhere else, but in the South, you see it. Everywhere. Everywhere. Every, like, county has its own variation of it. So, yeah, we we see the same things show up over and over again. I would love to hear some new stories. So, do you think we've finally appeased the Friday the 13th gods? I am really hoping so because we've tried so hard. And if, if we don't do it this time, it's just this episode is never going to air and will probably vanish into the ether as well. Yes, yes. So let's go pet some black cats. There is one in the room with us. Absolutely. He has been so good while we've been recording. And I think that's a good port. And, and um, yeah. Yeah. I think we're good. Good yeah, night. I, good night, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Culture Cryptids is written, produced, and directed by me, JD. And me, Corey. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Culture Cryptids. Questions, comments, corrections, hate mail? Email us at culturecryptids at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>